Hello, this is Duran Orenstein from bestsaxophonewebsiteever.com, bringing you what I hope to be the best saxophone podcast ever. Here's where I meet with super brilliant folks from the saxophone world who will be sharing their insights, tips, tricks, and whatnot with you to inspire you to improve your craft and have a great time doing it. Hello, everyone. Today we have something really exciting, Mr. Bob Mincer on the podcast today. So to give a little background, Bob is a 20-year member of the Grammy Award-winning Yellow Jackets, has recorded some 30 solo projects, including his own Grammy-winning big band, holds the Buzz McCoy Endowed Chair position on the faculty of University of Southern California, does workshops all over the world, writes books on jazz, writes for orchestra, concert band, and big band, travels with his own quartet, and plays with numerous other bands around the globe. He is equally active in the composing, performing, and educational fields. Bob has written over 200 big band arrangements. His big band music is played all over the world and has influenced numerous big band writers. He honed his big band writing and playing skills in the bands of Tito Puente, Buddy Rich, Dad Jones, Mel Lewis, and continues to write for big bands and orchestras worldwide. As an instrumentalist, Bob has worked with Art Blakey, Jaco Pastorius, Sam Jones, Randy Brecker, Gil Evans, the Yellow Jackets, GRP, All-Star Big Band, Mike Mineri, and the New York Philharmonic, to name just a few. He's done session work for James Taylor, Steve Winwood, Queen, Donald Fagan, Milton Nascimento, and countless others. He's generally considered one of the tenor saxophonists who came out of the incredibly influential school of New York players in the 1970s, which includes Michael Brecker, Bob Berg, David Lehman, and Steve Grossman. So with that, I welcome you to the podcast, Bob Mincer. Thank you, Duran. God, I just, I'm I'm tired after hearing all that that I allegedly did. My gosh, I may have to take a nap now. (laughs) Well, I'll try to make the rest of the interview uh, less exhausting than that. No, no, no. Very cool, very cool. So, um, do you mind sharing a little bit about how you first got involved with music? Oh boy, Um, as far back as I can remember, I was attracted to music, initially by way of listening to the radio, um, hearing music on television, and the few recordings we had around our house. And the, the the real conduit, I think, was a piano that was in our house, actually in my grandfather's apartment. He lived below us, and uh, I spent many, many hours sitting at that piano, just experimenting and playing songs I had heard on the radio on recordings and making up my own songs and um, just... Uh, being very fascinated by by music and and how it fit together and uh, you know whenever I heard a piece of music I would try to figure out what made it sound the way it did mm-hmm. and I mean just to continue you know I did all the things any musical person might do uh, as in play in school ensembles. Uh, I started playing clarinet when I was in third grade. I had friends that were folk music enthusiasts, so I learned how to play guitar, hanging around with them. I later played electric guitar and tried to play rock and roll. 
Um, I started, uh, as I said, on clarinet in junior high, moved on to tenor saxophone. Um, I just tried to play every instrument I could find, <laughs> every kind of music I could think of, basically, from a very early age. Wow, that's, that's a pretty diverse range, especially folk, guitar, folk music on guitar to tenor sax, you know, in, in jazz. That's, that's pretty unusual, but very cool. Yeah, yeah it, there was a common, well, look, I mean, I think music chooses you. I, I, I believe, uh, you know, you have, you have the tendency towards being, you know, interested in what music is, is made up of. And, uh, you know, if you hear a certain kind of way, it allows you to absorb musical information fairly quickly. And uh, if the interest is there, well, you know, I think you wind up pursuing music. Yeah. With, you know, great veracity, which was my situation. Yeah, yeah. It's all music, so as long as uh, there's a place in your heart for it, you can do it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as I mentioned in the intro, you're, you're definitely known as one of the great sax players to come out of the 1970s era with, you know, as I was saying, Michael Brecker, Bob Berg, Dave Liebman. So besides coming up around the same time, what do you think it is that links all of you guys together stylistically? Well, I mean, first, first off, uh, Mike and Dave Liebman were—they were a couple of years older than I, and they were already in New York on the scene when I started hanging out. I mean, I grew up in a suburb of New York City, and I would say, like around 1970, I started hanging around uh, Manhattan and the music scene there. And I would have to say the commonality amongst all those players was, uh, you know, being inspired by John Coltrane and Joe Henderson and Sonny Rollins and this certain free-spirited concept of uh, playing improvised music. Um, At that time, uh, a lot of the people we've mentioned lived in lofts, which were these commercial spaces um, that that were in commercial neighborhoods where you didn't have neighbors and were able to play virtually 24 hours a day. So there would inevitably inevitably be jam sessions at people's lofts, and a lot of playing and exchanging of ideas went on. And uh, you know, it was that trying to play improvised music in this contemporary way, as I said, inspired by. Uh, John Coltrane, Joe Henderson, uh, uh, the John Coltrane Quartet, and uh, it was fairly well understood that you weren't going to make, uh, you know, this great living playing jazz. Although those guys, we, actually, we all went on to to do exactly that. But at the time, we really loved the music and. Uh, and we're very attracted to, to, to playing the music as much as we could. Yeah, it sounds like a really exciting scene, that uh, the whole loft scene and all the great musicians who came through there. So Yeah, it was. <laughs> I can't even imagine. So uh, fast-forwarding a little bit, um, you know, thinking in jazz music, it's really rare that someone gets to play in the same band for as long as you've been with the Yellow Jackets. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what's it like to play 
improvised uh, spontaneous music with the group of guys who have been together for so long. It's it's a great situation. Um, I, I just to 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 uh, go back to where it all started in 1990. I received a phone call from Jim Haslip, the bass player, uh, inviting me to play on a recording with the Yellow Jackets. And uh, honestly, I didn't know a lot about them. I knew they were they were a very very good group, very musical. Um, and doing some interesting things. Um, our son was one year old, so the prospect of going on the road a lot was not really first and foremost in my mind. Um, anyway, uh, Russ Ferrante, the piano, sent a demo of, of the music, and uh, it was really fascinating, very, very clever and unusual sounding. I thought, wow, this, this is really... Uh, this goes well beyond, you know, this sort of generalization that the Yellow Jackets are some kind of commercial band or a fusion band or whatever they were being called. It was just really great music. And uh, so I went out and did the recording, and then we, uh, later that year, did a tour of the Far East, and one thing led to another, and it just became very apparent that this was a, a great musical organization. And... Um, uh, one of the great act, uh, aspects of that band is it's a partnership, so there's no leader, and when you are a Yellow Jacket, you're called upon to be a decision maker, a composer, arranger, producer, as well as player. And I had never really been in a situation like that before on that level. And, uh, you know, it took, it took a while just to learn you know their vocabulary and learn learn their repertoire, but once I did, it it felt very very comfortable and also inspiring. Where I I, I saw there was just tremendous potential there, and uh, quite honestly, 21 years have just zoomed by, and we've done some 13, 14 CDs in that time period, and it just it gets better and better, you know. I mean, I think early on I, I had thoughts of perhaps moving on. But uh, after a certain amount of time, I realized this is about as good as it gets, you know, to have that long-standing relationship with a bunch of great musicians uh, where you can play just almost anything and it seems to work. And... Um, it's, it just keeps growing, and uh, I've never experienced that before quite this way. So that's why I'm still here. I don't really see myself going anywhere anytime soon. Wow. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's definitely a rare thing. And, you know, the music you guys play in that group, some of it's kind of complex arrangement-wise. How do you guys do a lot of rehearsing before you go out on tour? We don't. We don't rehearse a lot. We all individually do homework and try to come to the table well prepared. Um, and you're right. There is complexity in the music. It's, it's this rare combination of complex composition with ample space for uh, improvisation and you know, having the ability to change the song every time we play it. So, uh, you know, uh, 
whereas in some traditional jazz settings, there's a, a, a smaller amount of composition and perhaps more improvisation. In this band, it's somewhat equal, but but it it's it has the same looseness and flexibility, just with kind of a compositional slant that that interests me a lot. Being especially being that I'm, you know, I, I spend a good deal of time on composing and arranging, so it's kind of an ideal setup for somebody like myself. Yeah, sounds like it for sure. Sounds perfect. So switching gears a little bit into the educational world, um, you know, it's obvious you do lots of clinics and work with students all over the world. So I was wondering if I could get your take on what's one of the top things you see that student musicians generally are in need of improving. Well, you know, on one hand, I, I think what's happening in jazz education is, is terrific. I mean, it's really become a classical art form in terms of, you know, uh, an academic approach. And, uh, you know, there's, there's many books on the subjects and curriculum have been devised. And, uh, you know, people really take the history of jazz music quite seriously nowadays. Um, the, the thing that really is required to, to play jazz authentically is to play a lot. And that's what we all have to make sure is happening in any sort of educational scene. Um, at the University of Southern California, where I teach, there's a huge emphasis on playing, on writing, on arranging, writing tunes that serve as a vehicle for your playing. And establishing relationships with teachers all over, I'm sorry, establishing a relationship with other players that, you know, you can sort of form a bond with and develop music with. Um, it's really about playing. It's about, you know, you can, you can, you can tell a musician what to play, you know, step by step, but until they, number one, have heard uh, what it's supposed to sound like vis-a-vis -vis listening to recordings, live performances, and actually got up there with a live band and played, you know, repeatedly, it's, it's, it doesn't really mean that much. Mm -hmm. So it's really about playing and interacting and, you know, working out things in playing situations. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of working out things in real-life playing situations, for, for someone who's new to playing in like a small improvisation band ensemble, like a, like a quartet or a quintet, for them, is there any specific part of the music that their ears should be concentrated, like for example, the drums or the bass line, or is it a constantly shifting thing uh, where their ears should be concentrated? There, there can be any level of focus, Duran. I mean, uh, I think the main essence is paying attention to the detail. Um, you want to know what the drummer does, what he's doing on the ride cymbal, what he does with his snare drum, bass drum, uh, what the hi-hat does. You want to know what the bass line sounds like, what sort of shape is involved. Uh, you want to see... It, when listening to a recording, how a saxophone player, you know, relates and coexists with the drummer, with the bass player. You know, you want to know what the piano player plays, how pianist accompanies, 
you know, how he voices chords. Um, in terms of saxophone playing, you want to know not only what notes the saxophone player plays, but how they are played, how they are articulated, how does the note start, how it was it sustained, how does it end. Um, you know, the more detail you can uh, recognize in something you're listening to, uh, you know, the, the, the greater understanding you have of, of how the music fits together and what really makes it speak, uh, what makes it project and connect with people. Um, you want to see the whole picture, you know, in terms of form and shape and dynamics and momentum, and, you know, all the, all the detail that, that, that gives music a certain personality. Uh, at least that's what I've tried to focus on, you know, through this long journey of learning music and it's it, you know it's ongoing i mean i'm still still studying and exploring and learning new things all the time mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well i mean you know playing in as many groups and different styles as you do you're incorporating multiple musical vocabularies and that obviously involves a very highly attuned ear and I was wondering, what would you say are some of the best things a musician could do to improve his or her ear? Well, I, you know, uh, a real good thing for the ear is to uh, to learn other people's solos off of recordings. Mm -hmm. And as I said, learn the notes, also learn how the notes are played. And you can do it without writing it down, or you can write write. The, the information down. Uh, you can play along with the CD. Uh, singing is a great way to work on someone's ear. You know, s try singing a solo that you're listening to, transcribing. Uh, singing in general is sort of that conduit between the ear and your instrument. If typically, if you can sing something, uh, chances are you can play it. Mm -hmm. um, so. Uh, you know, listening really is, is probably the best ear training there is, and, and deciphering what you're listening to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Um, so, you know, moving over a little bit to the world of learning composition, uh, for a sax player or, you know, a single note uh, musician of any kind, um, what are some of the things that you would keep in mind while first learning how to compose and arrange music? Well, uh, probably the first thing that I, I uh, encountered was playing the piano. Uh, it was the window into the world of harmony and into a forum in which you can experiment and combine harmony, rhythm, and melody together while you're looking at this layout of notes. And uh, I think I think playing piano in in a general way is so very important if you're going to be any sort of musician. Mm -hmm. um, but as a composer, initially it was, you know, it was the place where I could experiment with sonorities, with sounds, with voicings, uh, with rhythms, and come up with you know a vocabulary of my own and. Aside from learning other people's tunes, I would spend time just improvising little phrases, uh, motifs, melodies, grooves, vamps, 
chord progressions and so on that uh, you know ultimately became part of my composing vocabulary. So piano was the first part. Um, you know, playing. I've always played drums. I think that's another entryway into the world of composition and arranging. Just knowing the language of the drums. I play some bass and guitar. So you know, coming at it from that angle. Um, and then listening to all different kinds of music. Uh, there's a lot of information out there, you know, in the classical repertoire, all sorts of jazz music uh, from old to new to Brazilian music, African music, folk musics of the world. Uh, you know, you need a vocabulary. Uh, you need points of reference. And you need to know... You know, initially, some of the words that are used in these compositions or songs that, you know, ultimately will inspire you or in some way, you know, just give you a starting point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of your composition, I know you obviously do a lot of big band composition, and I was wondering, you know, when you put a big band together in this day and age, it seems like that's a pretty complicated endeavor. And I was wondering, for your big band recordings, how much rehearsal time do you get before the actual recording with the band? Not enough. <laughs> At least with the musicians I've always used. Uh, you know, when, you, when you're using the best players, uh, typically they're, they're busy doing a lot of different things. And, uh, you know, if you can get one one good rehearsal and you know you're ahead of the game um, so that said it's very important that you're very clear on how the music should go and you you present the music to the players in a very clear concise way so uh, and you pick the players that are good readers and can really jump on new music and play it with a sense of authority and you know style I, that I always kind of preferred that to, you know, to doing a lot of rehearsal. I, I just couldn't. I, I couldn't. I couldn't arrange to rehearse with the guys I played with. My first big band consisted of Dave Sanborn, Mike and Randy Brecker, Lou Soloff, Marvin Stamm, Barry Rogers, Dave Taylor, Peter Erskine, Will Lee, Don Gromick. Uh, and all those guys were really busy and something magical would happen when you got all those people into one band and I, I just saw from very early on if I figured out a way to present this music in a clear format where they could see what it was that was going on quickly then great things would happen with the music mm -hmm. and uh, that's kind of the way it goes I mean you know, we ideally, uh, before I did this last big band record I did some four or five years ago, I organized a 10-day tour for the band, and we actually got out there and played the music 10 nights in a row and then recorded. That was ideal. Um, but that was really the only big band record I did that way. The rest of them, you know, kind of helter-skelter, played, you know, through the new music out on the stands for a gig or two and then uh, went into the studio and started recording. Yeah, the tour sounds like a good way to get some paid rehearsal time in before the recording, so it's yeah. like the ideal situation. 
Yeah. So a as for your own playing, uh, what do you find yourself practicing the most these days on your instruments? Oh, I, I like to practice uh, blues and rhythm changes in all 12 keys. Uh, I like to practice the music at hand that is, you know, the music of the Yellow Jackets or whichever band I will be playing with. I, I like to, you know, feel prepared before I get up on the bandstand. Um, I like to practice new tunes. Occasionally I like to keep learning new tunes. Um, I, I like to just sort of freely improvise and play things, stumble onto little devices or patterns that I then spend some time with and work on. Uh, that's kind of the way I expand my improvising vocabulary. Um, I will occasionally look in somebody's book and just look for something to work on. Jerry Berganzi has some really nice books. Um, Walt Weisskopf. Um, this Slonimsky book, The Source of Scales, is sort of an interesting book that has an organized way of sort of splitting up uh, scale patterns and you know, based on the overtone series, and um, you know, any anything that seems like might be in, uh, of some sort of interest from an improvising or composition or technical standpoint, I I try to take a look at. And uh, yeah, kind of like that. Awesome. Play some Bach. I like to play some of the Bach partitas and cello suites on the saxophone. Those are great to play. Um, I wrote a uh, piece for tenor saxophone and concert band that I have to play coming up, and it's it's pretty hellacious. There's a lot of notes, so I sort of have to keep practicing that on an ongoing basis. And are you going to be playing that in uh, classical, traditional classical saxophone style, or are you going to be... Uh, to the extent that I can, yes. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Oh, I'd love to hear that. Yeah, there's a recording of it, actually. The, uh, the uh, University of Kentucky Lexington uh, did a CD of uh, things I've written. And uh, that piece, it's called Go, by the way. It's a three-movement piece for uh, wind ensemble and tenor saxophone. It's, there's a recording of it on Mark Records. Awesome. That you can check out. Awesome, awesome. So, you know, out of your many, many musical experiences, are there any that stick out as being particularly influential to your career? Well, um, I think they're all influential in one way or another. I mean, I've been fortunate to, to play great music with a lot of great musicians. Um, playing with Thad Jones, Melrose Big Band, playing with Art Blakey, playing with Buddy Rich, Jaco Pastorius, Hubert Laws, oh my gosh, uh, you know, so many, so many great experiences with the Yellow Jackets, with my own groups, uh, uh, you know, it just, the list goes on. I, I mean, one early experience that really had an effect was um, sitting in with the uh, Rasan Roland Kirk at the Village Vanguard when I was 17. I had this far-flung notion I was ready to jump out there and, you know, and play with some of these guys. And uh, 
so I went and sat in, and you know, it was, there was a there was a custom back then. This was in the late '60s that you could go sit in on a Sunday night with the band at the Vanguard, uh, and Rassan was very gracious, and he had, I think, three people sitting in on the last set, you know, a couple of tunes, and uh, all I know is I got my rear end whooped pretty severely, and a tune was called that I didn't know, and uh, it was a fast tempo, and uh, that was a wonderful motivator. Uh, I just, I felt so embarrassed and humiliated, and I swore to myself at that point I would never let that happen again, and I went on this quest to then learn a lot of tunes and really learn how to play fast tempos and learn not only how to play my instrument, but learn the music so that, uh, I, you know, I, I I would have something to say when I crossed an opportunity to actually get up and say something musically, as in sit in with somebody or play with someone. So that was a, that was a noteworthy experience, one I'll never forget. Wow, I mean, that's the first I've ever heard of that tradition of letting people sit in at the Vanguard, which is pretty much the mo one of the most prestigious jazz clubs in the world so yeah well you know I think at one time there was there was a certain camaraderie in, in jazz where you know people sat in with one another you know it, it was there was it was it was a club where people were welcomed and uh, you know uh, there was there was a generosity there that perhaps doesn't exist the same way today I don't know. I mean, I, we in the Yellow Jackets, we have people sit in all the time, you know. I mean, we, we welcome, you know, sort of an outside party to partake. It's, it's inspiring and interesting, and, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, this music is about communication and uh, conversation. And the more the merrier, as far as I can see. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a, that's a great attitude, and... I, I never recognized that that's something that's shifted over the years in jazz, so it's good that you're keeping that tradition. Yeah. You know, I think, I think the shift took place in that, you know, bands started to have original repertoires, and, you know, whereas in the 50s and 60s, there was, you know, the jazz standards were pretty much the format for, uh, for, for, for jazz gigs. I mean, that's, that's not to say... You know that a uh, John Coltrane or a Thelonious Monk didn't have their specific repertoire, but uh, I, I think there was more of a common language in you know the repertoire, and uh, people would play with one another, as far as I know, and that that did shift you know, to this original music concept that we have today. Yeah. Wow. Well, you know, you've another thing I've wondered about is fact that you've played all over the world and I was just wondering if there are any cities that you found to be more receptive to jazz music than others hard to say um, there are jazz fans everywhere um, you know a lot is just contingent on the molecules in the air and the sound of a room and the particular audience and on that particular day uh, we you know we've I've been in places where there were great nights of music 
I've been back to those same places where there wasn't such a great night of music on another day for whatever the reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I just there's great places to play everywhere. You just you sort of have to find them at the right moment in time when things line up and the audience manages to connect with the music and you know it's just one of those elusive things that you stumble onto periodically yeah so it's not specific to any place or any city it's just no the i wouldn't stars say so i mean no i i think i think some festivals you know there are some festivals where people go to you know drink wine and eat cheese and chat and those typically aren't the best you know listening venues uh, in the world, but uh, again, you never know. You know, you could. I mean, I played some of those festivals where the band was just on fire, and you know, people just stopped eating and drinking and kind of really paid attention. I mean, it was hard not to, just because the music was very strong and compelling. So it just depends. Mm -hmm. It's actually good to know. So, um, you know, speaking of inspiration. Um, I was just wondering, you know, you do so much in so many different areas of music and obviously a very hardworking guy. Are there any times where you just feel uninspired or you feel like doing other things, even nothing? Um, I like to do nothing sometimes. I, I don't get to do it very much, but I love to, to take a walk. You know, we live in Los Angeles now near Griffith Park. And there's nothing that I love more than to uh, take a walk, you know, in a beautiful setting and just kind of absorb nature and just feel, feel the energy of the earth, you know. Um, I, I like that, you know. Um, and I, I think it's helpful to, to my connection with music, you know, where... The best things seem to happen when I'm not forcing, when I, when I just let things kind of unfold uh, in a natural way, rather than trying to make things happen. I mean, I, I, I know that, you know, one has to stay committed and busy to, to, to really be a, a musician, but uh, there's a way to do that, that, that I think can be influenced by that act of leisure, of, of just, you know, doing something peaceful or just sitting quietly you know I think that's a key ingredient of the bigger picture mm -hmm. so yes yeah I think a lot of the great musicians in all genres have a strong kind of spiritual interconnection and it seems like something that's necessary in order to just create music of the highest order absolutely absolutely I mean, some people say you know, it's a question of getting out of the way of the music, you know, letting the music happen, mm -hmm. you know, which is not to say that, you know, you, you don't do certain things or, you know, uh, deal with certain disciplines to, to prepare yourself to be in that situation. But uh, at the point where you are about to play, you know, with people, I think a certain letting go has to happen where where you just surrender to the music and to the ensemble at hand and uh, that's kind of an extraordinary feeling and sensation when when that all is working because you don't feel like you're playing you feel like 
you're a conduit somehow for the music. And, uh, there's there's nothing more invigorating and inspiring as being in that state. Absolutely, absolutely. So I've got a ton more that I could ask you, but we're running out Keep of time. Keep going. <laughs> okay. Well, one thing I was curious is. Um, you know, what's the next musical frontier for you? What's what's the next thing that you're interested in doing that maybe you haven't done yet? Gosh, you know, I I I, I feel like I'm still working on the things I've done. Uh, you know, I want to do them better. Uh, I want to continue to have a big band and and write music for that. And I I, I think it's wide open. I think there's still a lot of territory to explore. I'd like to be a better saxophonist and, you know, find different ways to write and to play. Um, I'd like to write for various ensembles, you know, utilizing wind instruments, percussion string instruments in a variety of ways. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I just, I feel like I want to keep doing what I'm doing and just try to do it better, uh, you know, in, in a variety of ways, basically. I feel like I have the instrument, you know, in terms of who I'm playing with and what I'm doing, and I just would like to refine it all and, uh, you know, and just try to add more depth to what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, we're talking about art, so it's pretty much a never-ending journey. You know, even, even if you're playing in the same style, um, it's you can never be too experienced or too proficient so yeah sounds like that's been your experience mm -hmm. um, so out of the music that's come out over the last few years does anything stand out as being particularly inspiring for you well yeah um, all sorts of things um, gosh um, I, I've really been taken by uh, a saxophonist named David Binney who writes really beautiful interesting music and plays wonderfully um, I've loved what Keith Jarrett's been doing lately, Brad Meldow um, I still love, you know Tower of Power, I, every time I go hear them I, I just am so inspired mm -hmm. I've listened to a lot of contemporary classical music uh, that uh, really inspires me a lot. Uh, a composer named John Adams writes interesting music. Uh, John Corigliano. Um, there's a guy named Ada, A-I-D-E, who's a conductor, pianist, composer from Great Britain who writes really interesting music. I heard one of his pieces played by the L.A. Phil not long ago. It was very, very interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, it's pretty wide open. I mean, I, I'm listening to folk music. So I love some of the music of Brazil. There's a very fine guitarist down there named Chico Pinheiro that uh, I've actually been playing with a little bit and plan to uh, record with on my next big band project. And He's a beautiful composer and player. Yeah, and I'm constantly on the lookout for other things, other artists, things that I uh, haven't heard before. Ongoing, work in progress. Of course. 
You know, it's funny you mentioned Dave Binney because I had him on the podcast a couple weeks ago. So, very interesting guest, really into a lot of cool stuff. So. I imagine. He's, he's a great musician. Yeah, definitely. So, just to close it out, can you share maybe, I know you've gotten so much great advice, I'm sure, over the years with all the great people you've played with. But does any is there any advice at the moment that sticks out, which which you received over the course of your career that you know uh, was extremely helpful that you could share with us? Well, you know, a lot of the people I played with didn't give a lot of advice um, directly. Anyway, I mean, I think you know they they sort of they led by example and just through getting to play with them and observe them, I learned very valuable lessons. Uh, there, there were actually a, a few people ventured forth and, uh, you know, sort of gave me directives. One in particular was a guy that was on the Basie band who essentially what he said to me was, and I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, uh, what he said was, make a nice sound come out of your instrument. And uh, I, I think at that time I needed to hear that because I was so involved with, you know, what notes to play as an improviser that I had overlooked the treatment of those notes. And uh, I found that, you know, once I gave some more thought to that, I was able to uh, really sort of add components to my sound and style that, that made it a lot more compelling. Um, also, when I played on the Buddy Rich Band uh, at that time, this was the mid '70s. I was, you know, very taken with John Coltrane and Joe Henderson, and I was playing in that style. And of course, Buddy came from another era, and it, that's not to say he wasn't open to all sorts of ways of playing. But his point of reference, you know, when he was a young man, was playing with Lester Young and Charlie Parker and people like that so uh, he would kind of pull my coat and say look you know you might want to check out some of these older players and I, you know and I realized that was very very good advice in that uh, it, it was what the, the job called for you know um, to play to play, and I, what I took away from that was to play in a contemporary way, you really must have the depth of having studied uh, the players that the contemporary players studied. So that, you know, you have this comprehensive vocabulary rather than the shallow vocabulary that results from only studying the most modern players. You really need to know, you know, the full spectrum of how this music evolved and and you know what what the vocabulary is from the 1930s up to current time and uh, I, I work on this to this very day and I feel that that's really important for uh, aspiring students as well just to really to have a broad vocabulary and certainly a focus and, and a passion in terms of style but to to have that background of really knowing the music and knowing the vocabulary over an expansive period of time. Mm -hmm. Very cool, very cool. Um, we're all 
Uh, we're pretty much out of time, but I really appreciate yeah, really appreciate you giving so generously of your time to be here today. And oh, thanks, uh, my pleasure. I I enjoyed it actually. Okay, good. That's always good to hear. So I always like to leave the podcast with a sample of the music from the person I'm interviewing. And so today we're going to leave everyone with a tune off one of your recent big band albums. It's the title track, actually, and it's called Swing Out. So we'll be leaving everyone with Swing Out. And once again, thanks so much, Bob. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Duran. Okay.